Today's sermon is titled, Rejecting Jesus, Rejecting Jesus. Now, a couple years ago, uh, Katie and I had a conversation that started off on an, on an awkward foot. Uh, she came up to me kind of out of nowhere, and she said, you're really weird. And I'm like, how do I respond to, to that comment? Uh, do I respond? I had a few different things going through my head at that time. I'm like, all right, this is not news to anyone. Like, we know this. We've been there. We've established this fact. You're not breaking news to me. The second response I had was like, well, you're the loser because you're married to a weirdo. So, like, that's your fault. And the third one was like, man, how did I convince her to marry me? She's normal. I, I'm not. Now, she's not even listening to this. She's sitting over here talking, and, and it's okay. You want to share with the rest of the class? You want to pass a note? You want to go to prom with me, yes or no? That's the way it goes. I'm in trouble, guys. All right. So she says, you're a weirdo. I have all these thoughts running through my head. I don't know how to respond to it. And I didn't really feel like arguing at that point. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm just gonna respond like this. Can you elaborate? Can you tell me what you mean by that? And she, she doubles down and she's like, yeah, you're a weirdo. And here's the reason why. You're not afraid of rejection. And I'm like, okay, why does that? She's like, you have really thick skin and you're okay with failing. And, and then I started like filtering back through my life. And I'm like, okay, let, let's see this on display here. When I was in high school and I played baseball, sometimes I would come in as the relieving pitcher. And, and sometimes we'd be up by a couple of runs and the bases would be loaded and the coach would call on me. And I loved it. Like I wanted to pitch in that moment. I would watch my mom get out of the stands, walk away and like hide and, and then, I would hear her screaming at the top of her lungs. I'm like, mom, pipe down. I'm trying to pitch over here. Um, and then I remember in high school, like I had to shoot my shot with the ladies. I didn't have a shot. Like I wanted a number. I wanted a date and those kind of things. I knew I was going to be told no, but I still wanted to try. Like I was okay with rejection. Then I think about when the Lord saved me, changed my heart, the spirit indwelt me. And then I, I alongside one of my best friends just became really bold evangelist, really stupid evangelist, at least very jealous or zealous. I shouldn't say jealous, zealous for the Lord. And, and, and I was not afraid of people telling me no to kind of evangelistic uh, pitches, so to speak. And then I remember when the Lord called me to plant a church, we were still living in Texas at that time. And every one of my family that still lives in California, we call them and tell them, they'd be like, you're dumb, stay in Texas, don't come back to California. What are you doing? We're like, we're gonna burn the ships and we're coming back to California. And I went to every person I knew in Texas and said, God called you to give me money to go plant a church. And... Like some people said yes, a lot of people said no, and I was okay with it. I was okay with rejection. I had really thick skin for that. Now, now here's the reason why I'm sharing that. As we've studied through the Gospel of Mark, Katie and I were just discussing this yesterday, one of the preeminent themes that has come uh, to the surface in Mark is that Jesus is the authoritative one. Jesus is the authority over everything and we don't like that, so we reject Jesus. And yet, as we watch the ministry of Jesus, he keeps on walking toward 
towards his own crucifixion. Jesus keeps teaching and healing and ministering and providing for needs and forgiving sins and doing his ministry even though he keeps getting rejected and the hostility grows and the vitriol grows and the cross is looming over his ministry and yet Jesus continues to walk through rejection knowing that what's on the other side of his rejection is salvation for many and the spirit dwelling within many. Now, what we're gonna look at today are four different reasons why we might reject Jesus. So if you're not a believer, I just wanna say you're welcome here. I'm super glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, sitting outside, thank you for being with us. What you're gonna see today are maybe some of the ways in which you've rejected Jesus in a grand scale, on kind of a salvific sense. But this is not just about rejecting Jesus as Lord and as Savior. For those of us who have been walking with Christ, this is also about how we reject Jesus in our daily decisions, how we refuse to submit to him and accept him and follow him and obey him. As we look at the story that I just read, the the, the people, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, They were the religious people of the day, and yet they themselves were actively rejecting the Messiah. So for those of us who would call ourselves Christians and walk with Jesus, it is entirely possible for us in our daily decision-making to sweep Jesus under a rug and to reject him in our choices. And what we want to establish today is that rejecting Jesus is bad, okay? And we can repent of that, and we can turn from that, and we can trust in and follow Jesus. So here's the four reasons why we reject Jesus. Number one, we reject Jesus because we don't like authority. Number two, we reject Jesus because we have an unwillingness to believe. Number three, we reject Jesus because we fear man. And number four, we reject Jesus because we lack clarity. All right, so we're gonna journey through each of those as we look at these verses together. First point, we reject Jesus because we don't like authority. Now, one of the fallouts of the 1960s, this kind of like free love, free, you know, like free to be me era, there's been a ton of fallout and a ton of sad fallout from that era, but one of the major fallouts of that era is this idolatry of personal autonomy that I am completely autonomous from everyone else. I am an independent person. I am the authority over my own life. Like when you say this phrase, my body, my choice, you are worshiping at the idol of personal autonomy. That is just true. Whatever angle you come from, you are worshiping at the idol of complete autonomy, complete freedom in myself. And then you, you look around culture and you take culture in, the, the movies we watch, the messaging we see, the, the music we listen to, like just think about that. Some examples, uh, we've got Public Enemy and their song, Fight the Power. Like we know this. We, we have NWA and their song about the police that I can't say the name here on this stage without getting in trouble. We have Rage Against the Machine. Like that band, the name is Rage Against Authority. Rage Against the the Government Machine. We've got songs, uh, pretty much every song from Radiohead, which is the most overrated band of all time. Except for Nirvana. Star Wars is awful too. Yes, thank you. Green Day, right? A lot of their music and messaging is about fighting against authority and pushing against authority, and they're awful too. 
And it's not just music, it's in all of culture. And, and just as a confession time, like you could probably pick this up on me, I hate authority. I don't like authority. I love being independent. Like Katie and I, we chose to homeschool this year, and there's a lot of reasons why we chose to homeschool, but one of the primary reasons is we love freedom. Like I don't want to be locked up in an office Monday through Friday, nine to five. I don't want a school district to tell me when my kids have to be in their seats. Like we're going to declare that for our kids and we're going to go where we want, when we want. We don't love authority. I think it's ingrained in human nature to kind of bristle against authority. Like you want to see me squirm a little bit, start talking to me about HR policies and bureaucracy and rules. Cause I think most of them are unnecessary. I've argued with every HR person I've ever had over me because most of their rules are not great. Let me, let me give you an example of one. I used to work at an organization and there was a guy there that did not like wearing shoes. Um, and not just closed toed shoes, like shoes at all. So he would show up to work barefoot like completely barefoot. And it was just really weird. There's 160 people uh, there. And, and so what needed to happen was this guy needed to be calling to the office and say, hey, you're gonna lose your income if you don't wear shoes. And that should be a pretty simple and easy conversation. Like, okay, I'll wear shoes to work. Like that's pretty obvious, right? But instead of that, this organization decided to write in a policy that everyone has to wear closed-toed shoes to work, and it made it into an HR manual, it made it into an orientation process, it made it in an email that went company-wide, and all of these things. There's a rule now that everyone was already obeying that became a rule in this big thing they had to have meetings about, and we wasted time and we wasted money in what could have just been a personal conversation with this guy, just, just wear shoes. So I think a lot of that stuff is, is bad, but here's Here's the deal. Most leadership, most authority in our world is not bad. I've had HR guys reason with me and say, listen, I'm here for your own protection. I want to make sure you're legal and, and above board and above reproach. I want to make sure you're, you're doing things wisely. And I'm like, well, loopholes are there to be exploited. Okay. So I don't want you to prevent me from going into to loopholes. That's bad advice. Don't listen to that. Most of us bristle up against authority. I mean, think about the garden, right? We look at Genesis chapter one and two. God creates everything. Everyone's living in harmony. It's, it's beautiful and it's perfect. And God lays some boundaries for his people. And he says, here's how I've intended for you to live. Just don't, don't eat of that tree. Don't do that. And then what happens in Genesis three? The serpent enters the picture and he begins wooing Adam and Eve to disobey God. And underneath them uh, walking in sin was the serpent saying, listen, God is authoritative over you and he's given you these rules. Why? He wants you to be miserable. He's withholding good from you. If you eat of that tree, man, you're finally going to have everything you're looking for and longing for. If you eat of that tree, man, you're finally going to become like God and in control over all things. This is how the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And we know from the story of scripture, that's not how it goes. The story of scripture shows us a God who is good and who is wise and who is powerful and who is perfect. And he has laid boundaries for us. And those boundaries are not for our diminishing, but for for our flourishing. And when we walk in the ways in which God has told us to walk, we walk in the way of joy and we walk in the way of life and we walk in the way of happiness in Christ Jesus, ultimate satisfaction. And yet in sinful human nature, we want to push up against that. 
We wanna bristle against that, against all authority, but especially against the authority of God. Now, with that, I'm gonna reread verses 27 through 30. So look at your Bibles with me. And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, they came again to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and they confront Jesus again saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. We get another clash of authority here. Right, right there in, in verse uh, 27, we see uh, the authority over Israel questioning Jesus again. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the rabbis, they made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 71 men who ruled over the political and the religious life of Israel. The, the high priest would preside over the Sanhedrin like a CEO or a, a president, and they had unlimited power. The scope of their power, the daily realities of their power over Israel was unlimited in many ways until Jesus came on the scene. And we watch Jesus continue to grow in stature, grow in reputation, grow in authority, grow in his following, and this threatened the authority of the Sanhedrin. So they were scared of Jesus. We've seen all throughout Mark, these people, or these, the Sanhedrin reject Jesus on many occasions. In Mark chapter one, we see the Sanhedrin rejecting Jesus's teaching authority. In Mark chapter two, we see them rejecting Jesus's authority to heal people. In Mark chapters two and three, we, we see the Sanhedrin rejecting Jesus with his authority to forgive sins and provide salvation. And what the Sanhedrin was attempting to do in their challenging of Jesus was they wanted to embarrass him. They wanted to undermine him. They wanted to discredit him. They wanted people to doubt him so that the, the central portion of power would return back to them away from Jesus. And in the text we read, the Sanhedrin is taking the same tactic they always have. In verse 28, they are trying to check Jesus's ordination papers, so to speak. They say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or Who's author who gave you the authority to do this? In other words, they were looking for Jesus's board certification, so to speak. Where is your authority coming from? And what they're trying to do, again, is for the crowds following Jesus to lose confidence in him, to stop following him, and to consider Jesus a lunatic. They ask him where he gets his authority because they want to undermine it and have it returned to them. Now, here's the deal. Uh, we, we all in our daily living, or maybe in a salvific sense, we reject the authority of Jesus. And here's the truth. It's not because the authority of Jesus is a bad thing. I mean, think about the Sanhedrin for the three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. What did they see? They saw Jesus doing good for people. He was healing people. He was raising people to new life. He was delivering people from demonic possession. Those who were blind could see. Those who couldn't hear could hear. Those who were paralyzed got up and walked. Jesus was healing people like crazy and doing good for people. So it's not about the fact that Jesus had authority because his authority was good for the people of Israel. It was just the fact that the Sanhedrin no longer had authority. In other words, Jesus was a threat to them. It wasn't about what Jesus did with his authority. It was the fact that Jesus had authority at all. 
Now, you've probably heard the name Aldous Huxley before, a writer from England. He, he famously said this about what drove him to reject Christianity. He said this, we objected to the morality imposed by God because it interfered with our sexual freedom. You see, it wasn't about the authority of God in, in, his, in Huxley's life. It was about what that authority represented, who Huxley could and couldn't sleep with what the sexual ethic of the kingdom looks like. And here's the truth. We, we know this. God has given us a sexual ethic in this world that's good and for our flourishing. He has told us that sex is for the confines of marriage between a man and a woman for life. And to step outside of that, it might be a moment of temporary bliss, but then we come crashing back to earth because we've stepped out of God's beautiful design for sex and for marriage. And we, and we know this intuitively. And so Huxley's not rejecting God because he's authoritative. He's rejecting God because God is imposing upon his morality. And this is true of us too. We don't reject God simply because he's authoritative. We reject him because we feel like he's pressing on us. And he is because we are fallen sinners and he is a perfect and wise God. And so I think about the different ways, maybe in our culture or in our church, in which we might reject Jesus because he's authoritative. And I think the two primary ones for us, and I just want to keep beating these drums for as long as I'm able to preach here. Number one is what we do with our money, and number two is what we do with our time. That's the nature of suburban living. It just is, especially a wealthy suburb where most of us are fairly well off in this room. Right? And we, we come and, and we read the scriptures and we see God's grand design for money and for time and we bristle against his authority there. Like God says to us, hey, you should give generously. You should serve others with your money. You should find all the freedom and joy that comes with living generously. And, and yet we all step into this place where we're discontent with how much we have and we begin to live as if we're owners, not stewards of our money. And then what happens? We're never satisfied. The goal line always moves back and we always want more and our motivations are always off. God has given us his authority and his grand design for money. And if we were to step into that, we would find freedom. And it's not money that's the bad thing. God tells us, go earn money, go work hard for money. And why? So you can bless others with it. The second thing would be time. Man, like we, I'm guilty here. Katie and I are guilty here where we look at our time as if it's our own to be hoarded for our own purposes and our own uses, not for the glory of God and the good of others. And so the scriptures say to us, man, don't neglect the gathering, prioritize worship, prioritize community, prioritize being with fellow believers. And then something hits the calendar that's better and more enticing. And we're quick to throw that away and go to the other thing. Man, we got to do another vacation. We got to sign up for another activity. Got to go on another camping trip. Just kidding. We don't camp. That's stupid. I'm feeling it today, guys. I'm coming after all of you. Myself too. If you're new to Story Church, sorry. It's just, it is what it is. We reject what Jesus says to us about money and about time. Why? Because we don't like authority. We're not the boss of our own lives when we step into the kingdom of God. And we hate that. So look at how Jesus responds in verses 29 and 30. 
Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus puts the Sanhedrin in a pickle. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus draws a connection between himself and between John the Baptist. If you know who John the Baptist is, we we learned about him early in Mark. He He was a prophet of Israel and he was universally accepted by the people of Israel as a Jewish leader and teacher and prophet. And his constant message in in Jerusalem and in the countryside was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the Messiah was here. And he gained crowds and he gained gained a following and he gained disciples and he was baptizing people in the Jordan uh, River and people were following him. And even the Sanhedrin themselves, they accepted the ministry of John the Baptist. Now Jesus is saying, I am in the line of John the Baptist. Why? I went into that Jordan River. I was baptized at the hands of John the Baptist in that river. And as I came up out of those waters, the spirit descended upon me like a dove and a voice cried from heaven. This is my son. Follow him. Obey him. Jesus is saying you have, you Sanhedrin have universally accepted uh, John the Baptist as an authority. Well, he baptized me and God himself said, I am his chosen one. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has ushered in the kingdom. So if you accept John the Baptist, you must accept me. He puts them in a pickle. They don't know how to respond to this. We'll we'll see here in a moment how they do respond. But here's the truth. The authority of Jesus is never a bad authority. Always a good authority. Why? Because Jesus is God. And Jesus always acts in accordance with the character of God. And we learn all throughout the scriptures that God is just. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is benevolent. He is generous. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. He is unlike any leader we've experienced in this fallen and broken world. And Jesus himself is saying, I am a good authority and you should submit to me and walk in the flourishing that I have for you. So we reject Jesus because we hate authority. Number two, we reject Jesus because we have an unwillingness to believe. Now, let me, let me create some distinction here. Uh, the Bible gives two categories around belief uh, when I'm speaking about this. The first category would be unbelief, okay? Unbelief in the Bible. Uh, here's what, what the Bible describes in that way. We saw in, in Mark earlier with the father who has the son who's demon-possessed, and he, he comes to Jesus and he says, can you deliver him? And Jesus says, have faith. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. When the Bible talks about unbelief, the Bible is talking about those of us who are following Jesus, but we have different seasons in which we are struggling to see the realities of our faith, when we're struggling to grow in our belief, when we're in a, we call it a dry season of our faith. Maybe there's sin clouding our vision of God, and the Bible says, hey, hey, repent of that sin, turn to Jesus and walk in belief. Maybe we're in a season of sadness or depression or suffering, and there's just kind of a cloud over our lives where we can't see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Again, the Bible says, trust and obey Jesus. There is another side of this. He will, he will carry you through this. He will hold fast to you through this. The Bible never frowns upon the person who is struggling with belief, but is crying out to God, help my unbelief. Now, that is different than an unwillingness to believe. 
and unwillingness to believe is, is most prominently personified in Pharaoh. As we look at the Exodus account, where Pharaoh constantly saw Yahweh, God on display, as God was doing mighty things in Egypt for the sake of Israel, he sees piece of evidence after evidence after evidence to the activity and the goodness of God. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. He is hard-headed and hard-hearted, and he is unwilling to believe, even though he has all of the evidence. He is unwilling to repent. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And we see this tactic, this unwillingness to believe on display through the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 31 with me. They discussed it, the Sanhedrin discussed the question of Jesus with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Why were you unwilling to believe John the Baptist and believe the words of Jesus? So we know this. The Sanhedrin does have hard evidence to the ministry and the character of Jesus. Again, we've already rehearsed this, but we'll do it again. As Jesus was doing his ministry, we've looked all the way through Mark. He was doing good with his life, always doing good, raising people, healing people, delivering people, forgiving people. Jesus was always doing, even in his teaching, he was teaching good. And his character towards people was a heart of love and a heart of compassion and a heart of kindness for his people. The Sanhedrin had very clear evidence of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They know his authority is from heaven. They know he's connected to John the Baptist. And yet they harden their hearts and they are unwilling to believe. They reject Jesus. And again, why? because they were no longer in control of their own lives. And this is true of all of us. Doesn't that describe us? The problem in our lives when we, re when we reject Jesus is not that Jesus is not active in our lives. We all have evidences of grace all over our lives. I mean, just the fact that we're here this morning. We drove here, we're in air conditioning, unless you're outside. We were, you could probably hear the air conditioning and you want it. Um, but you'll have it at home. We have evidence. We have coffee, cars, family, friends, community. We're breathing. We woke up this morning. We're hearing the word of God. We just sang the word of God. We're surrounded by other people. These are just small evidences of God's grace. And John Piper famously said, God is simultaneously doing 10,000 things in our lives at once. We might be aware of only three of them. God is always protecting us and keeping us and clinging to us. And never mind the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sake of our sins. He was resurrected to new life and he freely gifts us that new life through faith. The evidence of Jesus' activity in our life is everywhere if we were to open our eyes and believe. And it's not just about the evidence of his grace. It's also about who he is. We've experienced Jesus as the compassionate one who says, come to me. We've experienced him as the one who is gentle and lowly and invites us to come to rest in him, to no longer try to work to earn our own salvation, to no longer work to try to earn God's favor, but to just trust in Jesus and then rest in the finished work of the gospel. We know Jesus as the one who is kind to us and gentle to us because the reality of the gospel is not that you're just forgiven from your sins in the past. It's also that you're forgiven from your sins now 
and in the future, fully, freely, forever forgiven. That's the heart of Jesus who saves us and keeps us saved because of his gospel. And we know him as this kind one, this gentle one, this loving one. But so often we are just unwilling to relent, unwilling to believe, unwilling to submit, just like the Sanhedrin. Are we rejecting the work of Jesus in our lives because we're unwilling to believe? If that's us, there's an opportunity to believe. Just look to Jesus and trust upon him. Number three, we reject Jesus because we fear man. Few things are are more motivating in this life than fear. And we know this intuitively. Uh, Let's say you were to watch something like, you know, uh, a 30 for 30 on ESPN or or a a documentary on 60 Minutes, and, and they're highlighting a success story. How often in those success stories do you hear something like this? I grew up poor and that I was afraid of being poor and that drove me to be successful. What's the motivating factor there? Fear. Fear of being poor, fear of having nothing, and that drove them to success and a work ethic. Or, or, or maybe it's someone uh, who grew up in a family with, with generational sin, like maybe, maybe something like alcoholism, and, and they say something like this, I don't touch alcohol because I'm afraid I'm going to become an alcoholic. The motivation there is fear. Now, that's not a bad thing, but fear is not a forever motivator. Eventually, it goes away. We should not be alcoholics because the Bible tells us to walk in wisdom and the way God has, has told us to walk. And there's freedom from that. How often do, do you hear something like, I'm not gonna get close to other people because I'm afraid they're gonna hurt me like everyone else has. Again, fear is the motivating factor in not building community. Fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. If you guys wanna see my wife run really fast, bring a snake to church next week. She'll be gone real fast. I'm really in trouble. She told me not to share that. But she was talking during my sermon, so I had to share it. Fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. Gosh, I'm loose today, sorry. Um, Verse 32, read it with me. But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really the prophet. So the Sanhedrin knew if they said that Jesus's authority comes from man, then they would be denying the divinity of Jesus. And in denying the divinity of Jesus, they'd be denying the ministry of John the Baptist. And in denying the ministry of John the Baptist, they would be denying God himself. And all the people of Israel would start an uprising because they loved and they, 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 they exalted in some senses, John the Baptist, not as God, but as a minister on behalf of God. So there would be an uprising if the Sanhedrin rejected Jesus. And so they kind of get really wiggly and they don't actually answer Jesus's question. Why? Because they were afraid of people. The fear of man motivated the Sanhedrin to not accept Jesus. Now, what happens as a result of the fear of man? The fear of man turns the Sanhedrin into cowards. They did not stand up for what was right in the world because they feared the uprising of the people. The fear of man turns them into liars. They knew what was true and they refused to say what was true. 
The Sanhedrin, because they feared people, they, they, they sought expediency in their lives where they bent their morality for the sake of moving things along. And this is true of all of us too. If we are walking in the fear of man, it's gonna cripple us and it's gonna turn us into to cowards. We will not stand up for what is right and true in this world if we, if we deny Jesus, if we deny his authority. We will not stand up for what is true in this world. In a world where lies reign supreme, Christians are called to stand up for what is true. But when we fear man, we will not do that. The fear of man will cause us to be like people who bend our morality for the sake of expediency. Like, I don't have to have a Christian ethic in the workplace because I just want to get promoted or I just want to get more. I just need to move things along. It crushes us. But listen to Proverbs. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Do you see it there? See what the fear of man does to us. The fear of man lays a snare for us. That snare will entrap us and it will capture us and it will keep us captive and eventually it will lead to our destruction. The fear of man causes us to reject Jesus because we want to preserve our reputations, preserve our sense of safety, preserve our sense of belonging in this world. But right there, Proverbs tells us it will ultimately destroy us. But the fear of God, God, that is a place of safety. That is a place of refuge. That is a place of knowledge and insight and wisdom. The Bible is clear that we should reject fearing man and instead fear God. And when we fear God, we step into all the things that we're actually longing for, a sense of belonging, a sense of place, a sense of preservation, a sense of safety. We have all of that in Christ Jesus, the one who keeps us and the one who covers us and will keep us and will cover us until the day of redemption. We need not fear man because God is for us. God is with us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Finally, we reject Jesus because we lack clarity. Look at the final verse of the chapter. So they, the Sanhedrin, answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. One of the perplexing things for me about the ministry of Jesus uh, is how often he answers a question with another question. Like, I'm looking for straight answers, Jesus. Like, I want those things. I want all the logic lined up, and I want steps one through 10 and, and A to Z. I want all those things in place so that I can have all the answers before I make an informed decision. Like, I, I want that. But how often, in this case right here, Jesus with the Sanhedrin, they're unwilling to give an answer. So Jesus is like, that's fine. I'm not gonna give an answer either. And he walks away. Or how often does Jesus speak in parables, which sometimes can be confusing and confounding. But here's what Jesus is trying to do when he does that. Jesus is trying to invite his people into the mystery of following him. 
The New Testament is clear on repeat that there are portions of our faith that are a mystery, that lack clarity. And what Jesus wants us to do is not seek all the answers before we make an informed decision, but instead to trust and obey him. And he wanted the Sanhedrin to simply repent and follow him, even if they didn't have all the answers, even if Jesus didn't give them all the clarity. And sometimes we don't have all the clarity. So what we do is we walk away from Jesus because we don't have all the answers. But think about this. How often does the Bible answer questions we're not actually asking? Uh, maybe maybe this, this, this will be a good example. Um, I believe the opening pages of the Bible are not intended to give us a direct timeline of the events of creation. I think we have some clarity around that, but we don't have perfect clarity, right? That's why there's so many different answers. Here's what the opening pages are about. He is God, we are not. He is creator, we are creation. He is independent, we are dependent. He is sustainer, we can't sustain ourselves. The opening pages of the Bible are intended to exalt God and to call us to follow him. But so often we're looking for answers the Bible is not intending to answer for us. And so often we reject Jesus we go to him and we ask him questions and he doesn't give us an answer. But what does he do? He says, trust me anyways. Trust in what I have revealed about myself, that I am good, that I am savior, that I am keeping you, that I have paid for your life with my life, that I have defeated death when I was resurrected, that I am returning and I will recreate all things and you will dwell with me forever in a garden better than Eden. You will be in my presence. We have all of these things with clarity and we know these things and the Bible says, stand on those things, not the answers you don't have. How often does the Bible tell us in the words of Spurgeon to trust God's heart when you can't trace his hand? When his hand of activity is not clear in our lives, the Bible says trust God's heart. Why? Jesus tells us to walk by faith. It's the core of our life is faith in Jesus, even faith when we don't see and when we don't know. And sometimes we reject Jesus because we don't know everything. What we can do is lay down our arms and trust in him. So we see Jesus, his authority challenged again here in this text. And we see the Sanhedrin rejecting him. They reject Jesus because he is authoritative and they are not. They reject Jesus because they're unwilling to believe in the evidence. They reject Jesus because they fear man more than they fear God. And they reject Jesus because they didn't have total clarity and refused to walk by faith. So what's the answer? The answer is simple. Don't reject, but accept Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Accept that Jesus is our authority and his authority is incredible. And if we step into his design, we're stepping into the flourishing that our hearts desire. Accept that Jesus is at work and we can see his activity and his heart in our lives. So let us not stubbornly refuse to believe what we can see plainly. Accept that we should fear Jesus, not fear man. And in doing so, we're walking within the will of God. Accept that we don't need all the answers. Even if we 
want them. We don't need them. And trust that Jesus is the answer. We should not reject, but we should accept Jesus. So what does that look like if you're not a believer? Let me just say this. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is drawing you to himself, and he's saying, trust in me. Turn from your sin and trust in me. And the second you confess with your mouth, Jesus will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and accept you into a loving and a perfect relationship. He will reconcile you back to the Father. You don't need to save yourself. Jesus has. If you are a believer consider what areas in my life am I rejecting Jesus? In my daily decision-making, in my relationships, in my workplaces, do I hate his authority? Do I bristle at his authority? So I take the plain things of scripture and I blatantly disobey them. Am I refusing to accept Jesus and see his evidence at dis- on display? Am I unwilling to believe even though it's clear that Jesus is active in my life? Am I rejecting Jesus because I fear man and fear for my own reputation? Am I refusing to accept Jesus in my daily decisions because I don't have all the answers? Just walk by faith. Trust in Jesus. And again and again and again, when we're confused about Jesus, all we do is look 2,000 years ago in our history where we see Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered into humanity and put on flesh and dwelt among us. He was tempted and tried in all the ways we are tempted and tried, and yet he lived perfectly. He was spotless and sinless. Everywhere we fail, everywhere we sin, everywhere we rebel against God, Jesus was perfect in obedience to the Father. And then Jesus, as we've watched Mark, continues to march towards a cross, a cross that we deserve because of our rebellion, where we should be hung as traitors, but Jesus stood there hung as a traitor in our place, mocked and spit upon and beaten and ultimately lifeless. And then he laid dead in that grave for three days, dying the death we deserved. And then he did not stay there. He was resurrected to new life by the power of the Spirit, and he gifts us that new life when the Spirit brings us to life, breathes new life in us, so we fear not death. Death does not have a hold on us because Jesus defeated death. Death does not have the final word. The resurrected life does, and one day our faith will be sight, and one day we will be in resurrected and glorified bodies just like Jesus because of his work, not because of our work. And right now, at this time, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he is interceding on our behalf, where he prays before the Father. And what he's praying is is keeping us within the grace of God. You don't keep yourself there. Jesus keeps us. Jesus keeps on saving us. Jesus clings to us. We just sang it before service. He will hold me fast. When your grip is loose and you don't see Jesus, he sees you and he is gripping tightly to you. He will not lose you. He is interceding for you and he is the mediator who makes way between man and God. And when we trust in him, we have life forever because of Jesus. So if we don't want to accept Jesus, all we have to do is look at his work, look at his heart, look at his life, look at his death, look at his resurrection. And the Bible says, trust in that Jesus, trust in the real Jesus, trust in the Jesus that defeated sin, death, and the devil in your place. Who else can you trust in? Who else can you follow?
He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not let you down. He will not let you go. He is perfect and he is to be followed and submitted to. Turn to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we, we do all too often reject him in our daily living, refuse to follow him and see him and be obedient to him and trust him. And yet, God, you're still gracious to us. And we praise you for that. And your, your grace is always an invitation back to you. Conviction is always an invitation back to you. You're just trying to convince us to step back into your mercy and grace where we belong. Help us, God, to do that. Help us to see Jesus, our Savior, and not challenge his authority, not stubbornly reject him in an unwillingness to believe, not fear man more than we fear God. Help us, God, to gladly repent and follow Jesus, submit to him, even when we don't have clarity. If there's people in the room listening, tuning in, that, that don't follow you, God, I pray in this moment by your spirit, you would revive them to new life, open their eyes, may the scales fall off their eyes so they could trust in Jesus. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus and are in your grace, help that grace be a motivating power to continue to move us towards a life of submission where we would be absolutely surrendered to your goodness, your grace, and your leadership over our lives. All too often, I know, I, I, I bristle up against that. I push against that. I, I turn from that. I rebel against that. God, I repent for that. And I ask, God, that you would give me a willingness to submit again to you and your leadership over my life, that I could gladly step into your design of flourishing. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here at Story Church. God, would you make us into a people who gladly accept Jesus and refuse to reject him in our lives? And as a result of that, God, would you give us a life of flourishing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.